Well, we will continue our worship this morning with our scripture reading, read by our very own Leah Avila. The passage on which our teaching is based comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So then remember that one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world, without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, you who were far away, have been brought near the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, by which he did put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ella. Great job. Now, be honest with the pastor for a moment. Um, when I introduced Ella, did I call her Leah accidentally? <laughs> that's what I thought. Well, as we get into this morning's sermon, that's not going to reflect well on me, but it'll serve as a good illustration, I think. So, Ella, good job. Leah's her mom, and Charlie's her dad. So, you did good too, Charlie. <laughs> All right, well, we are going through the book of Ephesians, and the reason that we're looking through the book of Ephesians is written right there on the front of your worship program. We're looking at how do we cultivate a flourishing faith, right? Who doesn't want that? I mean, because after all, who wants a dead faith or a dry faith or a cold faith? Yeah, I mean, pick your synonym, but ultimately that's what we want, Right? A faith that is living, active, flourishing. That's the kind of experience we want to have, not just when we come to church, but also in our walk with God and what it means to live our lives following Jesus. And so this series is looking at how do we do that? How do we cultivate a flourishing faith? And we've kind of been in this section in chapter two where it gets really exciting. Right, because last week we looked at this verse which 
ends with this promise that you were created for God's good works because you are God's poema, is the word there in Greek. His, his workmanship, his handiwork. Some would go far as to say his masterpiece. Right? That, that's a great message that God has created you for these good works. There's things that God wants you to do that he's planned for you to make an impact in this world. That's, I want to flourish in that. And then if you were listening to our scripture reading this morning, you hear at the end this amazing promise that we're being built together for the dwelling of God's spirit. This is his church. He's our cornerstone and he's building us together as we grow into this holy temple. And you're like, that sounds like flourishing. How do we have a faith that flourishes? But if you were listening, you also might have a weird turn when you come to this text that starts with, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. And he goes on to say, remember that he made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Remember that he reconciled both to God and one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Twice we get this call to remember the hostility, which is weird, right? Because you're like, I want to flourish in these good works, and God is building us up in this great kingdom, and the way that we're going to achieve that is remember how bad things are. <laughs> how, does that, how does that jive? How does... What's the calculus I'm missing here? Why would he want us to remember this? Why does he use this phrase, hostility, twice? Well, the answer to this question is ultimately one of the answers that my family picked up and moved all the way across the country from North Carolina to California. The answer to this question of why would Paul want them to remember bad things, remember the hostility, might not seem very much like a growth mindset, right? Or thinking positively. So how will remembering the hostility help his readers and ultimately help us this morning flourish? How will it help us to walk in the good works that were in verse 10? How will it help us become this amazing temple, this, this community, this building this dwelling place of God that he's building us up to that we read in verse 19. So we're going to look at two things this morning. Is that we're going to look at why we need to remember the hostility to see the complete picture of God's radical salvation. And we're going to look at remembering the hostility. We need to remember so that we can see the complete picture of our radically new identity. I know that's a mouthful, so let me try and simplify this a bit. So the first thing we're going to look at is why do we need to remember the hostility? And it's because in remembering the hostility, we see the complete picture of God's radical salvation. Because that's how you know God's really at work in your life. So you need to remember the hostility in order to know that God's really at work in your life. And then we need to remember the hostility because that's the only way we're going to get God's power to work in our life. Confused yet? 
Yeah, good. All right. So first point then. Why do we need to remember this hostility? Well, if you want to know if your faith is actually growing, if your faith is flourishing, if God is at work in your life, then you need to remember this hostility to get a full picture of exactly what God is trying to do in the world and in your life. This is how you'll really know God is at work. Because look, if you were to go back just a few verses in Ephesians chapter 2, you would read things like verse 5, for by grace you have been saved. Or verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved. And immediately you might begin to think, oh, saved means God's forgiving me of my sins. He's reconciling me to himself. And I would say that's not wrong, but that's not complete. That is not the complete picture of what God means when he says, for by grace you've been saved. It's not just about you and Jesus. And that's why Paul says you need to remember the hostility that he killed isn't just between you and God, but it's between you and the person maybe even sitting next to you this morning. It's between you and the person across the street. It's between you and the other people in this church. The hostility that God is saving you from is not just the wrath of God for the forgiveness of your sins, but he's saving you from the hostility that we have with one another to build us up into his church. And if you're not experiencing that, you might not actually be experiencing the kind of salvation God intends to bring into your life. Your faith might not actually be flourishing. You see, because Paul here is just saying what the Apostle John says in his letters and what the Apostle Peter says in his letters and the Apostle James says in his letters because they're all just repeating what Jesus said is that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So when you're being saved by grace, you're not just being saved to love God, you're being saved to love others. And honestly, if both aren't present, you can't be sure either is present. So what is this hostility I've been talking about? I've been speaking vaguely of here, of course. Well, look, it starts with, at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the earned circumcision by those who were called the circumcision, which is done in the flesh by human hands. All right, so what's Paul getting at? Well, Paul's getting at, there are basically, he says, you know, there, there's two people in this world, right? Those who say there's two people in this world and those who don't. No, there are two people in this world. He's saying there's, there's Jewish people, the people who know the one true God, who have the understandings, the teachings of Moses and the prophets and understand the kingdom promised through David and Solomon and, and that whole package of the Old Testament. They're God's people. And then there's all the other people. The, the Gentiles in the flesh. That is, people who didn't have an understanding of who God was. And Paul is saying, look, I mean, that, that's the fact of the matter. That there were some people who grew up understanding and knowing these things and some people who weren't. And the majority of the people he's writing to here, he's assuming, didn't grow up this way. Didn't grow up knowing about who God was and what God's law meant and some of the stories about how God has worked through Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon. People just no clue. 
about who, who God really was in the world. And that there was one group, the Jews, who had that knowledge, and another group who didn't, everyone else. And there was hostility between the two of them. Now, where did this hostility come from? Well, it comes for a number of reasons, but it's, it's kind of like the Hatfield and McCoys, to use an old example. Right, there's probably a better one. But basically, you know, it's like, well, why do you hate them? Well, because they hate us. And then you ask the other group, why do you hate them? Well, because they hated us. And you're like, well, who started it? Them, right? Because the people of God, of course, were given this unbelievable gift to know the one true God, right? They were given what inevitably became a dividing wall of hostility, which Paul says. He says, this is the wall of hostility. He's our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility, which is he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed regulations. So he's talking about the law of Moses, that there were things you couldn't eat, ways you couldn't eat, places you couldn't go, things you couldn't associate with, all the different Old Testament laws that when you read, you might find a little odd and weird, but then we all went through COVID and we're like, nope, I get what unclean means now, right? <laughs> so he's saying you had that. This amazing gift was supposed to be a light that would welcome them in. But instead, you kind of caved in and the system became more important than just who it was supposed to reach. Now, this is a simplistic understanding. I'll grant you that. And so they begin then to become exclusive instead of just welcoming. Now, they would say, well, that's because when we told them that this is the one way and this is how you should live and that this is what God demands, they hated us for it. And you'd go ask the other side, the non-judges, well, is there hostility? And they would say, of course, because they're so exclusive and, I mean, they're so traditional and, and close-minded and they think this is the only way. And there begins to become a hostility where each one's building an identity because they're better than the other one. I know, totally irrelevant to all those people who live in Irvine, right? No one builds their identity based on how they're better than other people, right? Who does that today? Of course, this has been something that has occurred throughout all human history. And you see, this is what Jesus is getting at, is that this, excuse me, this is what Paul is getting at, is that Jesus' mission wasn't just to reconcile you to God, but it was reconcile people together to create, as he says here, one new man from the two, one new humanity, that that's what God's intending to create. So let's get back to how do you have a flourishing faith? What does any of this mean? What does this wall of hostility mean here? Right? Well, Jesus is saying, as we read in our confession this morning, where it talked about how there was a, a, a curtain that barred us from coming to God, that Jesus tore that curtain, removed that curtain because of his blood, we can draw near to God. But you see, before you ever got to the curtain in the temple, there were all these different outer courts. And one of the outer courts was for the court of the Gentiles. So if you remember that great Sunday school story, right? Every little boy's favorite. Jesus gets the whips and goes after him, right? In there, Jesus is driving people out of the court of the Gentiles. And while we would use, might think that this dividing wall of hostility is metaphorical, it's that process inside of each one of our human's hearts which wants us to exclude the other for the basis of our own identity, we actually found in the 1870s that it was a literal wall not just a metaphorical one that excluded people. 
And on this literal wall erected in the temple courts where there would be the court of the Gentiles that could then be the court, enter into the temple itself, were written the words, do not enter Gentiles upon pain of death. And Jesus didn't just go into the temple and tear the curtain that separated us from God, but he also tears down the wall that separated us from one another. And if you're not experiencing that, that tearing down of both the inner wall, the inner curtain and the outer walls, you might not be experiencing everything God has for you. And your faith might not be flourishing. This is actually a really good heuristic, kind of a rule to know if God is at work in your life. Now, recently, Pastor Jeff, who's out on vacation this morning, probably watching on live stream, so everyone after the service can say hi to Pastor Jeff and tell him how great of a job the associate pastor does. Um, <laughs> but uh, he recently was speaking at our, at our denomination's, what's called the General Assembly. It's where all the churches gather once a year. And he was on a panel talking about you know, basically diversity within churches. And he was one of the speakers on this panel. And I remember before he went, he was like, got any tips? You know, kind of mining for information. And unfortunately, his associate pastor has no insights that are original. And so I couldn't help him. But in my experience, I think one of the ways that I would like to leave with you as you walk away this morning as a way through which a lens, you could say, to see whether or not this dividing wall of hostility is breaking down in your life, is I'm going to give you one cue to look for in your life. And it's the easiest one I could think of, I promise. And it's one that I think is throughout the entirety of the New Testament and the scriptures. And you, you, you see it all the time, and that is food. Okay? Food. If you want to know if God is cultivating in you a flourishing faith, and are you experiencing everything that he has for it, well, let me just ask you to just pay attention to the food around you. I mean, we'll do that this morning. As we come to the Lord's Supper, we'll pay attention to the food, the table that Jesus has prepared for us. But you see, food has always been a pain point in the life of the church. This is clear in the New Testament. If you were to just read the book of Acts, so if you don't know, the book of Acts is basically what did all of Jesus' disciples do after he ascended into heaven? How did they get this church thing started? What does this new community, this new humanity begin to look like and take shape? And almost along every step of the way where there are problems, you can spot the food. Let me give you an example. In Acts, early on, the first problem in the church that we see is Greek widows and Hebrew widows are not getting the same amount of food. You see, when the church begins to kind of become itself, they realize, man, we need the social structures that we kind of need to implement and safety nets and care for one another. And so how do we do this? And so, of course, they began to do daily service for the widows, providing bread for them. And there was favoritism because they were in Jerusalem. And so... Hebrew women, Hebrew widows were being favored over Greek widows. And so what'd they do? Well, they created an entire leadership structure, a whole new thing that some would say this is the first picture we begin to see of even the diaconate emerging. 
And it was all to overcome, honestly, the implicit racism that was playing out in the early church that we see right there with food. Well, what's one of the next problems we see? One of the next controversies we see in the church? Well, you could look at Acts chapter 9 and chapter 10. See, here Jesus calls Peter to go speak to a man named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion, and Peter is a Jew. They were not supposed to speak. They would not reach out to each other. And even though Jesus told them from the very beginning, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. This is for every tribe, tongue, nation. So far, most of the converts were all Jewish. And how does Jesus deliver the message to Peter that I want you to go speak to this man named Cornelius? Food. He gives him this vision of a sheet, and it's got all these animals that are unclean. Unclean, meaning Jewish people weren't allowed to eat them based on the regulations of Moses. And Peter's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm, I am a good Jewish man. We do not eat that. I have never eaten that, and I'm not about to go back on that. I'm not about to give up that identity now, Jesus. And yet Jesus calls him to give up that identity so that he could eat with a man named Cornelius. And the gospel, this good news about Jesus, could begin to spread not just for one ethnic group, but for all peoples. And Jesus did that through food. If you kept going, you could see stories in Galatians chapter 2 where Peter and Paul get into a public fight. Think about how wild that would be. Me and Pastor Jeff up on the live stream, arguing with each other about theology, right? I mean, of course, I would be right, and it would be terrifying, because y'all would be like, oh no, what's Pastor Jeff going to do, right? Peter, Paul, arguing with each other in public, fighting in front of the kids. And what's it about? Well, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but then he picked up his lunch tray and moved because he felt like, oh no, what are, the, what are my friends from Jerusalem going to think about me when they see me eating with the Gentiles? Food. And this builds into Acts chapter 15, where you have the first general assembly of all the churches, right? And this is literally all the churches at this point. They send representatives, and what's the issue on the table for them to deal with? Well, there's a big debate happening, and that is, do the Gentiles, the people we've been hostile to, do they now have to keep the laws and regulations of Moses? Do they essentially have to become Jewish in order to fully follow Jesus, to be fully marked as one of God's people, to have the full assurance of faith? And they have this argument. The great speeches are given. The Apostle James stands up and gives this great speech. And here's what they decide. They decide, no, no, you don't, you don't have to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. This is an awesome moment in Acts chapter 15. But it's weird because here's what they say. So they write a letter to let all the churches know, hey, here's what's going on. We settled this issue. Debate's over. And this is what they say in their letter. It seemed good to us not to burden you with anything except the following requirements. Now, right away, that should sound odd because you're like, hold on. We just read in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace you've been saved. 
right? If you watched the old live streams, you saw over Pastor Jeff's shoulder, the, the picture frame that said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But the early church had requirements. What are the requirements? And he says, abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat, strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these. Like, hold on. Hold on. Aren't you supposed to be saved by grace? It's not by works. Aren't, isn't it supposed to be there are no requirements? And that's, you admit that there's nothing you can do. And now are we being told there's something you could do? No. These aren't the requirements for the dividing wall to get into the temple through the curtain. This is not the requirements to get to God, but these are the requirements to tear down the walls of hostility with each other. Because the one through line through all four of those things that I just read, which probably sound weird, will all have been things that would have made it impossible for Jews and Gentiles to eat together. And you see everywhere that Paul went, when he would plant a church, he would first go to a synagogue and he'd be like, where are my Jews at? And he'd preach and he'd talk and he'd tell them about Jesus. And then he would say, now where are my Gentiles at? And then what would he do? He'd plant a Jewish church and a Gentile church across the town and they'd never talk to each other. No, that's what Americans do. Paul, Paul planted one church and the Jews had to go to it and the Gentiles had to go to it because it's not just about the curtain being torn, it's about the walls being torn down. And if you aren't experiencing the walls being torn down, you are not experiencing all of the salvation that God really intends for you. Look, this is, this is no secret. This is why I didn't have a great insight for Pastor Jeff. Because the way you know you're doing this is you look around at the food. I mean, you probably heard the story in the news this week, you know, that in China on TikTok, the label white people food is trending. <laughs> and what is white people food, right? It's okay, you can laugh. I give you permission. All right. <laughs> What is white people food? It's, it's bland food. It's like lunchable food, like crackers and ham and processed cheese and no flavor and maybe a speck of salt and white potatoes. And it's white food, right? Like the food is actually white because the white people eat it. You get it, right? White people food. And we can laugh about that. And I saw all the funny memes, right? Like white people spent half of history conquering and colonizing other other places for spice, and they still don't use it, right? <laughs> Where's the spice at? You know, and I mean, you know, SNL did a whole skit on this once, right? Like, there's no spice and too many raisins. They add raisins to everything. Like, all the stereotypes play out. And, that, and that's funny, but one of the things that I've learned here at New Life is that, well, as funny as it is to make fun of white people food, I know that for many of you, your experience growing up actually some of your most hostile experiences surround food and what you brought to school and how you were treated and how you felt like an outsider and how you felt the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I mean, I hope we're making strides, right? Because it's cool to bring hummus to the cafeteria now, but there's a lot of pain there that surrounds food because it points to the hostility that's been experienced. I mean, if you are actually going to be experiencing what God has for you, 
those walls, those pain points that surround food, because it's not about the food, it's what's, it's what's really the heart there behind it, is what God is really wanting to get after, to help you cultivate a flourishing faith. Brian Loritz is an African-American pastor and writes, uh, he's got a lot of books, one of them, Right Color, Wrong Culture. He speaks a lot on this, and he, he goes to, he actually uses an illustration that concerns white people food, mayonnaise, right? Mayonnaise is one of those odd things that you can actually Google, how does mayonnaise work? And on the How Stuff Works, they got a whole thing on mayonnaise. Because mayonnaise does what you shouldn't be able to do, and that is mix oil and water. Or in this case, lemon juice and vinegar and oil. If you just threw the two of those things into a jar, no matter how much you shake it, eventually what will happen? They'll separate out. Unless you use a term that I just learned, an emulsifier. And an emulsifier creates the environment It gives it the power, the properties necessary for two things that no matter how much you stir them together and try it hard, they would eventually separate out the emulsifier, in this case, the egg yolk, can hold them together. And you see, this is why this principle is so important, that the dividing walls in your life between others are coming down, is because if you want to experience more of Jesus, the emulsifier, the one who can bring all the things that normally would all separate out, no matter how hard you try, can hold them all together, you have to plug into him. So if you want to experience more, you have to experience this. Jesus is the emulsifier. That's exactly what the Lord's Supper points us to. All of us coming around this table, coming together, Different backgrounds, different pain, different shame and guilt and experiences. You see, in the first century, the only time a Jew and a Gentile, a male and a female, a master and a servant, a rich man and a poor man could ever sit at the table in public as equals would be around the Lord's Supper. And that power is still available to us today, that we get to experience it. This is why the Lord's Supper has a few different names. And one of the names is communion. And we don't just partake in communion with Jesus. We're communing with each other. So the question for you is, Think about the food in your life. What are the observations that come? You got weird food in your life? You have problem food? Because if you're going to actually live in the kind of community that Jesus calls us to live in, food's going to be a problem. Because you're going to constantly be thinking, okay, we got kids coming. Is there something they can eat? And I got the vegetarian over here and the gluten-free here and the pastor who can't eat spicy stuff. Is he coming? Okay, yeah. Do we have food everyone can eat? But it's also going to expose for you, well, who isn't at your table? Who aren't you experiencing these things with? Because this isn't just about ethnicities. 
This isn't just about economic diversity, generational diversity, but this is also about the very real hostilities that arise within each other as well. Now, this takes some nuance because obviously in some churches you can experience a hostility that's abuse. And I would encourage you to get out of situations like that. But in other times, you're just going to experience hostility because we're all broken. And in those cases, I would invite you to lean into the emulsifier, Jesus, to experience him. Which means you also got to lean into that person who's feeling a little oily or tastes like vinegar. But he can create something far better if you do. White people call it mayonnaise. So how can we get this kind of power to work in our lives? We'll close with this. How, if this is what's supposed to be happening, this is how I know, remembering this hostility, that Jesus didn't just tear the curtain, but he tore the outer wall. How do I, how, how do I lean in to the emulsifier? Well, this is why you need to remember the hostility so that you can see the kind of new identity Jesus has shaped for you. That you're no longer the one who identifies as the person who's richer than them, or the person who's better looking, or the person who's more athletic, or the person who's did better, and the person who, no more, no more sizing up where you find your identity in those horizontal lanes with each other. That's all a comparison trap. But instead, we're finding our identity in Jesus. And there's this really weird phrase, because we've talked about the first use of hostility. We'll close with the second. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. And that should sound weird, because when Jesus was put to death, I thought Jesus was the only one who died. How did he put our horizontal hostilities to death. How did Jesus not just tear the inner temple curtain, but how did he also tear down the outer wall? How did he do that by dying? Well, remember I said, think about the food? Well, this, we have the perfect picture of this in the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Supper points us to how we have a different identity that allows us to plug into Jesus, our emulsifier, the one who can bring us together. Because in order to come to Jesus, in order to come to this table, you'll read on the back of your worship program that there are some requirements. Much like the requirements given by the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, there are some requirements to fellowship with Jesus. And the first requirement is that you have to be able to admit that you don't deserve to fellowship with Jesus. Right? The only way you can purchase a ticket to the Lord's Supper is by admitting you got nothing to purchase it with. The thing that you need is need. You see, unless you humble yourself, you can't come to this table. And that's true not just for Jesus, but for those seated next to you. Right? This is true for the husband and wife who are fighting. And you immediately begin to think, well, in this fight, like this proves I'm better than them. Because if they could just have my point of view or my understanding or my sort of discipline, then they would close the cabinet doors properly and 
squeeze the toothpaste just right, and they'd put the toilet roll on the way it's supposed to go on, or they would know we're supposed to raise our kids this way, or they would know we're supposed to spend our money this way, and you begin to think you're better than the very person you live with, right? Jesus is saying those hostilities have to be torn down. Those comparisons have to be torn down. You have to understand you're no better than anyone because look what it says here. You who are far away and you who are near. The Jews who had all this knowledge about God and the Gentiles who didn't, they both needed Jesus to bring peace. Everyone stands on level ground at the foot of the cross, we say. So it humbles us that we don't build our identity on anything that becomes exclusive, but we build our identity on the fact that Jesus was inclusive of us when we didn't deserve it. But not only does it humble you down, it also gives you a better foundation on which to build, better than anything else. Because when you look at this table and you begin to realize that the God of the universe loves you like this, what would that mean for you if you really believed it? Right, that you'd be able to walk by the big windows that show your reflection and not be captured by wondering how you look. Because you'd just be free from the insecurity of, oh, I don't look how I want to look. Or the vanity of, oh, yes, yeah, good day. And man, if only these other people could go to the gym and be disciplined like I am. Right? Or what if you could pull into the parking lot and not worry about how you feel about your old car and how it just isn't that great? And look at the people with Teslas and look at this. And man, the insecurity. Imagine being free from that insecurity, but then also imagine being free from the pride of, well, I mean, they probably had to go in a bunch of debt for that car. Or, ah, it's probably just a lease. I at least own mine. Right? Immediately, you have to go into starting to calculate, right? To get back your sense of identity, to cover that insecurity. And Jesus is saying, look, you don't have to cover it anymore. I've covered it. You have a much better foundation onto which to build your identity. You see, in the Lord's Supper allows us to experience it. This is why we have the warnings in the Lord's Supper. This is why, kids, if you don't quite understand what the Lord's Supper means yet, that we ask you to wait until your parents and the pastors and elders think you're ready because you're not just entering into this thing with Jesus. You're entering into a communion with all of us, the saints, because this is how you experience a flourishing faith. Is when you look to the emulsifier, when you're observing, are there different kinds of food? Is it making you lean into these things? Right? And so, yes, you can all send me those text messages of, look, I'm eating this because I'm hanging out with these people who are different from me on Fourth of July. All that's great, right? And I, but I hope that's not just true this week, but of our church as a whole, so that you could experience everything Jesus wants you to experience, which is why we'll turn to the Lord's Supper now. So let's pray. Father, we come before you asking that you would open our eyes to see how you have not only torn the curtain, you have torn the wall of hostility. And so help us, Jesus, to remember. Remember what you've done and to know how you have entered into our space to help us flourish.
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.